Hey everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden, coming to you in the spring of 2020, a strange and unprecedented time for people around the globe. The world feels a little science fiction-y right now. In fact, movies like Peterson's 1995 Outbreak and 2011's Contagion are topping the charts of streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime as we attempt to make sense of life in the midst of a global pandemic. This is a unique and important time for leaders within faith institutions and people of faith to be present and thoughtful. It is a time when we rely on and critically examine the words and meanings of our faith to see what holds true now and what gives us direction for the world we hope will emerge when we all come out of our houses and can be together again in person. We offer this, our fourth season of the podcast, to you as we examine, as always, the connections between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. It's made me wonder why, as clergy, we weren't encouraging this kind of at-home spirituality beforehand. I mean, especially with kids and families. I think that that's so grounding and necessary in terms of how we approach formation. But for everyone, really, it's something that I think we could have focused on more. And so maybe, again, that's an opportunity to, to expand some of our practices. My guest today is the Reverend Emily Scott, who has pastored not one but two new churches, St. Lydia's Dinner Church in Brooklyn and now the Church of Dreams and Visions in Baltimore. A Lutheran ELCA pastor, Emily believes that Christian practice holds out rich possibilities. They call us to reach out across boundaries in love, to learn through discomfort, and to build relationships that bring God's realm close. On this episode, we explore a cultural obsession with busyness, what it's like to celebrate Easter this year, and the timely subtitle of her forthcoming book, for all who hunger, searching for communion in a shattered world. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. Thank you. It's so good to be here. We have um, spent a lot of time, those of us who are in the church planting realm, uh, following the words of wisdom that you have shared and posted during this time of social distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, the work that you have always been a part of in the church, of bringing people together Um, especially those who might feel far off from the church or far off from other people, that there are practices in the Christian faith that we can draw on that have been there from the beginning that actually transcend the separation we're experiencing right now as we can't hug our neighbors and we can't shake their hands and we, most of us are wearing masks when we go out Mm in public. Mm -hmm. So I wondered, um, just like to maybe start off the conversation Um, hearing a little bit about your thoughts on what this feels like, (laughs) I guess, to be, uh, you know, in particular, the pastor of Dreams and Visions, a new church, Mm -hmm. but also Emily Scott and the Reverend Emily Scott at this time. It's really strange. (laughs) I think that like (laughs) a lot of us um, who are pastors or spiritual leaders are just kind of flummoxed. And um, I wrote something the other day just to say it kind of feels like we're photographers who don't have cameras or musicians who don't have our instruments. It feels very, um, like, like all the things that we use to do our work have been taken away from us right now. Yeah. Um, and that includes being able to look someone in the eye or, you know, touch their hand or hold them or give presence, which is really so much of what our training is about. Yeah. Those of us who, those of you who are listening, who did not 
don't have an MDiv or I wouldn't go to seminary. We have classes about like presents. Presents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which probably sounds crazy to the engineers out there, but like where you're like, you don't have to say something all the time. You just sit and, you know, be a conduit for God's love and the spirit. But as you said, uh, that looks different. Yeah. So the ability just to be with people and certainly, you know, my, my work as someone who's been very deeply interested in liturgy and ritual is so much about drawing people together in one space. I mean, that's where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. So it, it is really disorienting. And I think, um, there's been a lot to learn about how those intimacies and connections can translate to online connection, which I have to say is much better than no connection. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, a friend a friend wrote to me the other day just to say he had popped in on our worship service online and he said, you know, it's so intimate, even though we're far apart. Um, but as leaders, I think we don't always feel that sense of intimacy because, you know, when I'm leading on our Zoom worship, I'm busy like muting and unmuting and, you know, shuffling my papers to see what's next. Like it's a very, um, again, disorienting yeah. way to be a leader, especially as the world is changing so quickly. Yeah, totally. Um, my son, sorry, just walked in with some wild onions for me. Thank you, Sam. That's very nice. <laughs> and a Nerf gun. Okay. I love you, sweetie. Okay. I'm going to need to be in here for a little bit. Okay. <laughs> right. Speaking of muting and, uh, things happening that, uh, you don't anticipate all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Cause I felt like on a zoom call that, wow, I can see things that I could only imagine before of like, what does someone's living room look like Mm -hmm. it made me think about as often as a community of faith can gather just the power of being in someone's home yes and for many inherited models of church that's kind of a a thing that hasn't happened in a while for Mm -hmm. larger congregations (laughs) to see someone's home yeah there's a privilege in it I think I think there's a an opportunity and a privilege in the moment to kind of enter into people's home lives and I think also at least in my community there's been a just a tenderness to people feeling willing to share in a new way because we're all kind of thrown off. And so I think we've been able to share our anxieties more fulsomely with one another and um, to support each other in a new way. So our congregation was about a year and a half into worshiping together dreams and visions in Baltimore Mm -hmm. when COVID hit and um, we had to stop gathering in person. So it's actually been kind of a strange like escalation for the community because we went, we were just worshiping twice a month in person yeah. and then suddenly COVID came and now we're worshiping twice a week. Wow. We have Vespers on Wednesday night and then we have church on Sunday and suddenly I'm planning, you know, all of these worship services, but a lot of, a lot of it is about touching base with people and hearing how they're doing and really having these intimate one-to-one check-ins with folks. And that's been something that you know, I really hadn't had access to before. So I think it's created some new opportunities and also some, a ton of fear as well at the same time. Yeah. It makes me think about for all of us, you no, know, regardless of affiliation or religious background or participation in a church, everybody's reality looks different. But for those of us who are kind of staring at the people in our house, <laughs> uh, like looking, you know, when a dog walks by, I'm like, it's a dog. I'm, I'm like a squirrel at this point. <laughs> so excited to see somebody out the window. <laughs> when stuff gets scratched off, it's interesting that in your new community, people are like, we want more of this. This is something that we begin to prioritize and new. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wonder your thoughts on that. Cause you've always talked a lot about what makes community. And how does that spiritual community figure into connecting 
Yeah. Of course to God, but also just to a life that we want for ourselves. I've actually seen a little bit of an uptick in interest in folks becoming part of spiritual community in this time. Like some people who had maybe visited once or twice have filtered back to connect with us online. And I do think there's something about this time, especially the heightened level of anxiety and this sense of kind of pre-grief that we're living in. Mm. We know things are going to get really hard. And we also don't have the ways that we're used to gathering to kind of process those things through. Like we can't see our friends right now and we can't have everybody over for a party. So I think seeking a spiritual space makes a lot of sense because people are searching for some kind of framing for the experience that they're going through. And especially practices. I think people are really hungry for spiritual practices right now that are grounding, that they can return to. So I've been trying to kind of weave as many of those practices and just really simple theological ideas into the worship that we are having online and trying to give people something to carry into the week. Because I think, yeah, there's just a real need for something to lean on. I love that image of carrying because it's so physical. Mm -hmm. We have to embody and show with our hands and our expressions that we are intending to connect with each other. Otherwise, it feels a little flat online. Yeah. Theologically, ecclesiologically, we talk about the disciplines that we have and the meaning making is in often the doing Mm -hmm. and the embodiment of those practices. It's not like when you lift up your hands, all of a sudden that's like a spiritual gesture only. But when you do it within a certain context with a certain intention, it becomes a way of making sacred space and a way of setting something apart. Yeah. And I think another opportunity we have at this time is to make sacred space in our homes in a new way to, and to invite people to engage in that in a way that they might never have considered doing before. So like if I had asked my congregation last year to make altars in their home for Holy week, (laughs) I really doubt that anyone would have engaged that, but Mm. now we feel so robbed of sacred spaces that we gather in together that I think people really, and our homes also feel so collapsed in on each other, like everything's happening in our home, that to create those discrete sacred spaces is so important and also to ritualize together, whether it's around meals. You know, my partner and I have kind of started more of like a formal Friday night dinner and mm. Sabbath on Saturday where we light candles on Friday at dinner and then Saturday's a, a day of rest, really. At least that's what we're trying to do. But I think because we've lost so much of our structures in the world, we have to create those at home. And honestly... You know, it's made me wonder why, as clergy, we weren't encouraging this kind of at-home spirituality beforehand. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially with kids and families. I think that that's so grounding and necessary in terms of how we approach formation. But for everyone, really, it's something that I think we could have focused on more. And so maybe, again, that's an opportunity to to expand some of our practices. I think this is a a moment in time where the curtain's been lifted a little bit on some mm-hmm. of our insecurities in the church of like, were we afraid as clergy and mm-hmm. churches that if those who belong to this beloved community found meaning at home, mm-hmm. that they would cease to find meaning in the gathered Here. community? Yeah, that's interesting. And do we need to have control of those spaces? Um, mm-hmm. Like there's enough. Yeah. <laughs> there's enough for everyone when it comes to religious practices. Right. Yeah. And what we know sociologically is like, actually, the people who have embodied 
traditions at home Mm -hmm. of their faith. Bring those to church. Bring those to church. Yeah. I am collecting, there's an object for each Holy Week service. And then as we go through Holy Week, you place those objects on the little altar that you've created. And so at the end, you have this little display. So I am keeping all my objects that I'm going to make a, probably the day after Easter, I'll make my sacred space. Yes. (laughs) Because isn't that always the way for folks who are spiritual leaders? Yes, that's right. But I think you're right that the church doesn't really have a copyright on religious experience. And I think if we give people the tools to engage that at home, they'll actually have a much more robust experience of faith. I hope we take this forward with us. It feels like there was a lot that needed to be reset, mm-hmm. at least sort of the normative white culture, for sure. In particular, this idea of like productivity or finding worth in busyness. and Yeah. And also this sort of constant drive toward like more, mm-hmm. whether it's more money or more productivity or more mm-hmm. um, better and better you know, there's always a sense that we're going up and up and up until something like this sets us back. And in some ways, it's been like this giant Lent where I think the practices that we take up in Lent, the idea is to kind of take something away and let go of something so that you see more of the truth underneath. Mm. And that's kind of been what this has been like is like, let's take away all these different practices that are part of your daily life. And suddenly when you don't have all those outlets, you can see things a little more clearly. So there's going to be a lot to mourn, but also a lot to learn from, I think. This is probably going to go on, this Mm -hmm. social distancing or quarantine through the Easter season. And I wonder, what does Easter look like? I think Easter has been really fascinating. It's been fascinating to watch our pastors and congregations try to figure out what it means to celebrate Easter alone. And Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, um, I keep going back to the image of the women at the tomb and the Mm -hmm. two men on the road in the gospel Mm -hmm. of Luke Mm -hmm. and the way that the resurrection doesn't appear all at once with like trumpet fanfare. In fact, it's very disorienting, a word I've been using a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very isolated, actually. Um, news of the resurrection comes to us in ways that are sort of confused, like meeting a man at the tomb who, um, you know, is maybe an angel or, or maybe not, or where there are two or where there are one, and the body's gone, or meeting a stranger on the road and then understanding later that that was Jesus. I mean, there's such a sense of disorientation through all the stories. And I know that we're going to miss our kind of joyful resurrection, um, you know, loud and beautiful celebrations. But I think that Easter comes anyway. And I understand the urge to kind of say like, well, let's not this we're in Lent now forever. Let's not celebrate Easter until we're back together. But I actually think it's so important that we celebrate the resurrection in the midst of this, because that's exactly what it is, is Mm -hmm. this way in which God lives right in the face of death. And I think we need the resurrection so much now. Yeah. And we need to be able to find ways to hold it that don't need trumpets and lilies and all of those Mm -hmm. things in our own Mm -hmm. homes and in our own kind of disconnected ways. Um, So yeah, I think the more ways we can give that to people wherever they are, we actually might get a little closer to Easter as it was in the beginning, I guess. I long for that in a way that that glimpse of the gospel writers use terror and amazement Mm -hmm. or fear and awe. And when the women told others about like what they had seen, Mm -hmm. uh, the the Greek word is leiros, Mm -hmm. which is translated an idle tale. Like nobody believed it, but it actually means kind of like bullshit. And (laughs) it feels, I mean, like that in a way, like it is strange in a privileged glimpse of the holy to be celebrating and 
living anew into this like it is what it is reality without as you said the brass and the mm -hmm. trumpets and the easter lilies my children have wondered does it does the easter bunny come during covid <laughs> and, and you, you turn the like the golden books you yeah know, those children's books with the golden spines the golden book they have an easter story book which is actually i like it better than a lot of the easter books out there because <laughs> it talks about you know the intrigue and jesus's unjust condemnation and um but at the, the last page of a golden book is always and today we celebrate um, by coming to church and mm -hmm. gathering with friends and neighbors for a meal. And this is our chance to kind of maybe have a glimpse of mm -hmm. those feelings mm -hmm. that obviously turned into something. Like if if we ended at the empty tomb or terror and they said nothing to anyone mm -hmm. or they were afraid, then we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Mm -hmm. Like if a, if a preacher had canceled Easter services as a social experiment, like they would be fire if they were like, you know what, this year we're going to do something different. And we're just going to like, feel like it was really like the first Easter and mm -hmm. we're not going to meet in person. And we're going to like gather silently in our homes and everyone's going to hide. We're like, I'm done with this crazy church. Yeah. right? But like, here it is. There's no other way mm -hmm. we would have come to it, but here we are. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the coming months, like there is going to be a feeling like the resurrection is bullshit. Mm. Like how can you continue mm. to believe in that life conquers death in the face of all this death? But we do, you know, that's what we do as Christians is we keep telling that story mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that love is stronger than death. That's right. What do we hold fast to and what do we hope for? Yeah. Even when things are super, super rough, can we look for those places of, of resurrection? What I love yeah. in the way that you describe yourself is you don't say you're a pastor who's planting a church, but you say like you're a church planter, like that's your call. Mm -hmm. That's your vocation. That's the, the way that you do ministry. And I was curious about that because I know, I know the sacrifices that go into starting anything from scratch, whether it's a business or a church, but in particular a church, mm -hmm. how all encompassing that could be. And yet here you are a second time around <laughs> doing this again. <laughs> and some people only want to do this one time. I'm curious about that. Well, you know, I really tried not to the okay. second time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really did. You know, St. Lydia's, I, I spent about eight years getting St. Lydia's off the ground from, you know, conception to all the way through them incorporating and becoming a congregation and um, through my departure. And it was just this huge birth, you know, this mm -hmm. huge kind of um, pushing of something new into the world and trying to help it become independent. And afterwards, I took some time, actually, I took almost a year to discern, and I was working on my book that's coming out in May during that time as well. But I really was hopeful that I could do something easier. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, put my name in for congregations that, you know, seemed like they would want to work with someone like me who likes to invent stuff and has a lot of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and, um... It just became very clear that I would bring nothing but damage to those congregations mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and that I really, you know, my call is to start things from scratch and to make new community. I do very poorly with kind of working with culture and traditions that are already there and kind of moving them to the next stage. People who do that work, I'm in awe because I just can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, it just, it became very clear. And I finally sort of had one of those dark nights of the soul and allowed myself to kind of start sketching what I did think God was calling me to do. And, um, like literally sketching on a piece of paper and drawing and imagining and lo and behold, it was another plant. I think there's a way in which, you know, our calls are really inescapable and it's a hundred percent Jonah where you try and run from them Mm -hmm. and, um, it does not work out well (laughs) when you do that. So it's very different the second time around. Um, it's much more familiar and much less scary. All the, the big feelings still come up, all the same feelings of like, I'm an imposter. Like, what do I think I'm doing? This is really silly. Nobody wants to be part of this. Mm -hmm. Um, nobody wants to go to church anymore. Like all of those thoughts, still come up all the time, but I remember them from the first time and it, I can kind of think, oh yeah, like I remember this one. That's fine. Like you can just be in the corner over there. I don't need to give you a lot of attention. Hmm. So it's been a much calmer experience the second time around and I felt more grounded and had a much more sort of easy understanding of what needs to be done and also a much greater capacity to tolerate the ambiguity of all of it because in the beginning, it really does feel like it's just sand slipping through your fingers for a long time and there's just nothing, there's no there there. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that for a long time, at least it did in my experience. And then just it's magic when the when things coalesce and like you reach this new stage that you didn't have two weeks before or a month before. So it's nice to remember that too mm-hmm. and be like, oh, the magic comes. There's nothing like it, you know. Mm. That's such a word mm-hmm. of hope and joy <laughs> for all of us who are a part of this type of work. Yeah. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about folks who maybe are three months or six months or maybe nine months into this with COVID hitting and just wondering, that must feel really hard. I feel very lucky that our community had kind of coalesced enough that we kind of know who we are and who's part of it enough to like move things online. But I think what I'd say for folks who are at an earlier stage and feel like maybe they don't have a core group yet is like, Right now, the whole internet is your whole is your core group or can be mm-hmm. like there's such a need to hear from spiritual leaders who can who can kind of hold this moment. Yeah. So even if you're connecting with people who aren't in the same state as you, I think there's something that still is happening in this conversation online right now or even on over the phone. You know, who, mm-hmm. who knows? Like, I think those moments of pastoral connection can be happening in a really broad way at the moment. Well said. So don't give up hope. <laughs> Amen. Well said. But it's hard. It's hard. This was going to be our first Easter together at Dreams and Visions. We didn't celebrate our own Easter last year. We went to um, join another congregation because we weren't quite together enough to do that. Yeah. So I was really looking forward to having Easter with folks and it will look very different yeah. <laughs> than what I had expected. So it's hard to um, feel like your train got derailed um, because planting something new is so fragile. Yes. But yeah, plenty of people looking for hope, plenty of people looking for direction and what's possible in this new time. Yeah, absolutely. Your new book um, that will be released on May 12th is called For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. And it details the experience you had um, founding and living within the community of St. Lydia's in Brooklyn. Just the story of that community and a faith that invites us to share power and to share connection. I'm personally really excited that this is going to be available to us. Um, and it's not just a book for people who are interested in church planting. It's really a much broader conversation. Yeah, I started writing about two years before I left St. Lydia's, mm-hmm. but I was starting to understand that it was time to go. Yeah. 
So it was odd to be kind of writing and departing and reflecting all at the same time. One thing I'm hoping that it will give to people is kind of a roadmap for how to build relationship with our neighbors, as actually especially in times of disaster, um, because a good chunk of the book is written in and through my own experience living through Hurricane Sandy and what it meant, really the fault lines that were exposed in our neighborhood and in New York City as a whole of race and class and economic difference after the hurricane came through, Mm -hmm. which is so similar to what we're experiencing right now with COVID. It's like there's so much that's laid bare during a disaster like this about how we've left people behind. Mm -hmm. So my hope for the book is that in reading it, people might have kind of a companion along the way as church planters or people who are making something new, but also as people who are working for justice, because it's very much about building relationships and becoming sort of seeing the world with fresh eyes and seeing that there's so much that's broken and becoming someone who wants to work to repair the world in some way. As a planter, I think it was really helpful to kind of look back on my experience and try and sort of pull out these sort of bits and pieces that I felt like could offer other people guidance along the way. And for sure, it was a piece of my own grief, leaving a community that I love so much to kind of um, write that through in a certain way. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to be able to to offer it to people. Would you be willing to read us something from your book? Yeah, so here's a little excerpt from a chapter that's called Empty Tombs. And it's kind of a um, Holy Saturday chapter. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Centuries ago, Christian communities stood in the rubble of their city and chose a story of a day when the world ends and two grief-stricken women go out in search of the friend they love and return terrified and full of truth with their hands empty. This was the choice they made, not to seal themselves in a tomb of despair and isolation buried deep under the earth, but to break bread. It's a brave choice, and one that takes place only when we're linked together with our neighbors. Only a community of love will pull us back from the edges of the tomb. It's you, I preached to my Lydians at the Easter Vigil, who are my living proof of the resurrection. You remind me what it means to live as people of love, right in the middle of the ruined city. None of us can do this on our own. The mountains may fall and the stones may tumble, but we will only tell the story again. So I got one final question for you. Do you have a favorite story that you love about God? Yeah, I definitely do. I think the place I've been um, sort of living the most lately has been with Mary Mm. and the Magnificat specifically, which I know we're in the wrong season for that, but... There's never a wrong um, season for that one. There's never a wrong season for the Magnificat. (laughs) The song that Mary lifts up after she's visited by the angel and told that this new thing's going to happen and the Holy Spirit's going to bring a child and it's going to be this wonderful, amazing... God (laughs) that she's going to raise. Yeah. And so her response is to sing. Yeah. Yeah. Is this beautiful song. Um, and yeah, poetry. Absolutely. That is also, um, so political. Yeah. (laughs) It's like so political. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, she sings about the tyrants being torn down from their thrones and the lowly being lifted up. It has to be my song every day living in Baltimore because um, this is a city that has been so deeply abandoned by the powers that be. And 
you just see the legacy of racism and white supremacy kind of written on the streets of Baltimore quite literally because of our history with redlining Mm. every day. So especially as COVID unfolds, I've been thinking so much about how vulnerable we've left poor folks and people who have different health needs or mental health needs. And it's just going to get kind of further ripped open by this crisis. So I think clinging to Mary's words that God is always coming and always tearing down what needs to be destroyed and lifting up those who have been sort of left on the bottom. That kind of reversal is something that I need right now in a really big way. (laughs) Um, And that promise for sure. Mm -hmm. So it feels like all our seasons are muddled together right now. Like we're in Lent, we're in Easter, and there's also like an Advent feeling at the moment of, of God kind of breaking in. So I think I'm just going to try and like live in that messiness. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's all a part of our story. Mm -hmm. That imagination, that beauty that you lift up feels right. Yeah, I think so. Emily, thank you so much for making time to converse today and just being what's real and and bringing the tensions that we experience and, and just the hope that you hold fast to and the presence that you cultivate and I'm just so thankful for your call and the way you share it with the world. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here and to talk together. Make sure to check out Emily's book, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World, which is released this spring. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Our producer is the fabulous Marthame Sanders. You can see and share stories and photos of the humans involved in this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. And you can visit us online at newchurchnewway.org. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.